philosophy of our church with expository preaching. Uh, we've just come out of the blessed life. I hope that you enjoyed that. Some of you are new since coming, and so we thought this review would help you, but we, we have a problem in our world. Our, our world, as Americans, we're probably the, the most biblically illiterate that our nation has ever been. And as a result, where we don't know God's word, we get into big, big trouble, right? The Bible says that without a vision, the people perish, or as it, as it states more, more in the original language, without a revelation, the people throw off restraint is what that means. If you don't understand what God's word has for you, you begin to do your own thing. And when you do your own thing, we find ourselves in great trouble. And it's important to us here at Life Church not to not to you know worry about all the fluff that is associated with a lot of messages uh, of preachers today but instead to make sure that you learn the bible because the holy spirit will take what you have hidden in your heart and he will bring it up in the seasons in your life you really need it you'll you'll find the word of god just coming up out of you because you've hidden god's word in your heart so expository preaching doesn't skip all over the Bible. It takes it in order, and it builds upon it week after week. That's why we'll do the teaching and be faithful to the teaching, but it requires you to be faithful to the house of God so that you can learn it. And we want to, to make sure that you learn it and that your children learn it, and we only have you for about an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday. How many know that's not enough for you to be spiritually healthy. You have to be in God's word on your own and your kids need you to explain the gospel to them. The greatest children's pastor in any kid's life is their mom and dad. You have to have biblical conversations, but you have to understand what you're looking at. And so even today, our little ones, they're, they're, we're gonna talk this, this passage through uh, in gory detail your kids will not get the gory details. But they will get a concept, and then hopefully what you'll do today is go, go home over lunch and, and explain it to ask them what they learned. Ask them, uh, you know, what did you think about that? Tell me the story. Get them to rehearse it, and then you've been better prepared. Now you go and you speak to them, okay? So uh, our, our kids' ministry is working hand-in-hand -in, -hand in tandem with this. Kids and youth ministry are incredibly important to us here at Life Church. It's, it's my, my own call. When I got, when I was 14 years old, the Lord spoke to me. He said, preach the gospel and preach to young people. And so we never want to ever lose sight of our kids and our teenagers. Uh, there's youth camp coming up, and you can sign up at the Welcome Center at your campuses. And, you know, or maybe you're an adult, you don't have any kids, but you like to Help a kid go to camp because God has powerful experiences that happen for them. So you want to get your kids signed up, especially if you have a teenager that's going to go to youth camp. You, we, have a, we have to register all them as a block. And so we need to have a name associated. You don't have to pay the money yet. We just need a name associated. And, and I love the heart of our church to help kids that maybe can't afford to go to camp. Every year, there's adults that step up and say, send one on us. We want them to go. And you can do that. Go back to the, the Welcome Center. Well, let's get into this passage today. And the first thing that we see is the death of the king. 
Saul. Now, Saul is, uh, he started really good and he has not ended well, which begs a question to me. How many of you, when you were a little kid and you pretended to be, you know, anything, you pretended to be either the good guys or the bad guys? If you were, you always pretended to be the good guy, uh, raise your hand. Okay, now how many of you liked playing the bad guy? Go ahead, raise your hand. All right, now I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, those of you who like to be the bad guy, you need to be up here for prayer at the end of service, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I always like to be the good guys. When my brothers and I, we would play G.I. Joe, uh, I always was G.I. Joe. But I had this evil brother, and he liked to play Cobra. He was, he was the bad guys. In, any, in anything that I could pick, I always chose good guys, good guys, good guys. And then I became a dad, and I was, of course, you know, any good father that at some point, if he loves the Lord of the Rings, is going to show his kids Lord of the Rings. And so I was a little troubled when my son thought that Sauron was cool. I was like, that's not good. I need, I need my son not to see Sauron as cool. Um, but... I, I was like, no, Jonathan, we're the good guys. We're the good guys. We're the good guys. It's very easy when we read the Bible to read it and see ourselves as the good guy in the story. But I want to challenge you that very rarely in our flesh are we the good guys. We're really the bad guys. And so as we read this story today, I want you to be looking a little deeper. I want you to see that there, I mean, the characters in, uh, the reason I love it so much in First and Second Samuel is because it, it, it's almost like a soap opera. There's so much drama. It's, it's it just, the way the character development comes to be, it's, it's really awesome. And we have just seen the death of a king. We're going to get a different story to how he dies today. The, la- the end of chapter uh, of, of 1 Samuel actually told us that he fell on his sword and committed suicide. But we're going to get a different rendition of that because David wasn't there. What we're getting in the story is now where David is informed what happened in that battle that just took place. Go with me if you have your Bible today. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and it says, Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziglag. If you remember where we were, uh, Ziglag was the place where David and his mighty men and all their families were. He had gone out to a battle. He wanted to... Actually, he was going to battle against the Israelite. He was a vassal of the Philistines. And and the Philistines said, no, we don't want this guy to go with us. We think he'll betray us on the battlefield. And they end up sending him back. When he comes back, he finds out that Ziglag has been burned. All the wives, all the children have all been taken captive. And they go after them to try to rescue their family. They were brokenhearted as people. So they go out, they find the Amalekites, and they wipe them out. Some get away, but they have this massive slaughter of the Amalekites. At the very same time this battle is happening, the Philistines and the Israelites are are in a battle that ends at Mount Gilboa. And the king of the or the king of the, the, the Israelites, King Saul, is slain there with his three sons. Simultaneously happening. 
And now David is going to get this information that he did not have. And it happened on the third day. Now, anytime you see a phrase in scripture like the third day, what immediately comes to your mind when you hear the third day? You think of the resurrection of the dead. You think of the king coming back to life. Now, the Bible does this in many ways. It looks for little phrases and it ties thoughts together. But in this thought on the third day, it's not going to be that there's a resurrected king. It's going to be that there's a dead king. And it happened on the third day, the day of expectation. It's, behold, a man came out of the camp of Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. That meant that he was in mourning. He wanted to show anguish. So they would rip their clothes, put dust all over their heads. You could see the tears coming through the dirt stains on their faces. And it came about that when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Now that sounds very honorable. He comes to King David. He says, you're, you're, you're a great, well, he's not a king yet. He's just David, the war, the warlord at this point. And he, and he gets down and he, he says, look, I'm, I'm humble before you. Now, the distance this guy has come from Mount Gilboa to Ziglag is a long way, well over 100 miles. If he completed that in two days, he was hustling. And then David says to him, from where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. He's talking about that battle that just took place on Mount Gilboa, where Saul and his three sons had died. And David said to him, how did things go there? Please tell me. He said, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his sons, are dead. So David said to the young man, who told him, how, how did you know this? He says, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? How do you know that? And the young man said to him, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And he looked behind him and he saw me and he called to me and he said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered and I said, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood be beside him and I killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, there are some holes in this story logically. It's, it's, it's an understanding of how Saul felt about Amalekites. He had been at war with the Amalekites. Actually, one of his great debacles was he was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites because God did not like these people. Now, you're like, I thought God loves everybody. Well, God does love everybody. But there are people that start wars with God, and the Amalekites were those group of people. When the children of Israel were coming out of the land of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked the weak and the lame and the stragglers. When God was showing his glory and saying, these are my people, these people directly came against God and his people and, and, and were ravaging them. 
Well, when that happened, God was like, no way. These people have started a war with me. Their hearts are wicked. And I will be with the, I will be at war with these people from generation to generation to generation. Now, you could say that sounds mean of God. Here's the deal. God knows the future. God knows all the future. We see time as this much. He exists outside of time. God not only knows what we have done, wrong or right, he also knows what we will do, wrong or right. And how many know that God knows what people's hearts are towards him, even when they don't? This is the idea of having all knowledge. God could see a zillion different variations, but know how your life plays out because he has foreknowledge of all things. And in his foreknowledge, he knows the Amalekites are a wicked people that will never come to him. And he says, I want them eradicated, but Saul didn't eradicate them like he was supposed to. In fact, he let one guy live, the king, and that king actually ended up generations and generations and generations later, he had a, he had a child and, and, the, and the line that came out of that wicked Amalekite king was trying to do a holocaust towards the Jews in the days of, maybe you've heard of her, Queen Esther. Actually, Haman, the bad guy in that story, was a direct descendant of the one Amalekite that Saul let live, King Agag. And you understand that these people are not to be left alive as far as God was concerned. You're like, wow. But God knows, and God if God could see that had Saul eradicated the Amalekite back then, it wouldn't have come back to go after his people generations and generations later with mass murder. How many know that God is the, he's the best judge of all? He's the, the Bible says, surely the judge of all the earth will do right. That's who God is. And God can make a call like that. And even though our finite mind cannot understand it, God's mind understands it. And, and so there is a war between the Amalekites and the Israelites. So for Saul to say, I'm going to, hey, Mr. Amalekite, come over here and kill me. That is not what Saul would have done. He would not have done that. Then this guy makes another little statement. He says, oh, yeah, um, you know, he had basically given up because he realized that people were so close. The chariots and the horsemen are on me. Well, the chariots and the horsemen, here's the problem with chariots. And that was the number one fighting weapon of the Philistines because they were people of the plains. How well do chariots work on mountains? Not so good. And so when this guy tells this story, it caused, it's like David's going, What? There's just this question. So he, he's listening to this young man recount the story. And we know that Samuel tells the story, you know, that, that, that the end of Samuel tells Saul kills himself. In another portion of scripture, I think it's in Kings of Chronicles, it says that God killed Saul because of his wickedness. That Lord kind of allowed this to be the judgment that fell on Saul's house. And in here, we get a different rendition. So which one is it? It's apparent to me that this young man is lying and he's looking for a reward. He thinks David will bless him for killing his enemy. Now, 
Have you ever had a huge enemy in your life? Somebody that you just did not get along with. They always seem to have it out for you. Maybe you, you, you got into a physical battle with them or you got into a verbal battle with them. People you just, like, like if they come in the room, you go out of the room. Now, I want you to realize Saul, even though he's David's father-in-law, David has been faithful in his relationship towards Saul. Saul has not been faithful in his relationship towards David. David seems to bless him. He spares his life. And this guy just keeps trying to kill him. God convicts Saul and still he comes back trying to kill David. David won't touch him because he's the Lord's anointed. That word anointed has to do with oil. It's the, it's the idea of what we say when we say the Messiah. The Messiah is one who's had the oil smeared all over him. It means that he's anointed to be this great leader. And so Saul is anointed to be the king. David also has been anointed to be the next king, but David won't take matters into his own hands. How many times do we want to deal with our enemies by taking vengeance into our own hands? And yet the Lord says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Even in our justice system, if people wound us and hurt us, we are supposed to, as citizens, turn that over to the officers and the judges so that we might get justice. We don't even kill them with our own bare hands. We give it over to others to exercise justice in way of capital punishment. And we trust that the lawyers in the justice system and the judges are to make sure that the law does not come across numb. They are supposed to do the right thing. We put it into their hands. David has put this whole thing into the hands of God and he cannot imagine himself touching the Lord's anointed. But this young man seemed to have no problem killing the Lord's anointed. When David's listening to this story, he's not sure whether it's true or not. The idea that, that the Israelites were, were killed in battle, that is a terrible thing to him because in his heart, he knows he's the next king of Israel. He loves his nation. He's had to run away from this mad king, but he desperately wants to come back. But how can he get back when he's being hunted? So he does, he, he's listening and you're saying, you're saying that Saul and Jonathan are dead. By the way, who's Jonathan? Jonathan is David's best and most faithful friend. So while listening to Saul dying might be one thing in, in, in David's heart, hearing that his best friend, his most trusted advisor is dead would have been like ripping out his heart. So is there any proof? How do you know he's dead? When this Amalekite pulls out the crown and the arm bracelet, David is hit with the reality that they are indeed dead. There's no way King Saul would have taken off this, this, this diadem, this crown, and this arm bracelet. And what was David before? He, he, uh, he became this outlaw on the run. He was the armor bearer of the king. He had polished that armband. He had polished that crown. 
And he looks at it and he goes, that is exactly his. I know it is. And look at how David responds. Then David took hold of his own clothes and he tore them. So also did all the men who were with him. Why? Because they loved their nation. And that king, even though he was not a good king towards them, he had done a lot of good things. When you see your enemy, do you see just the bad they do? Or do you have the honor to see the good things that they have done? You know, there's lots of people that we do funerals for. Not all the people go to heaven. You could get up and give a funeral and say, this person was a terrible person but hopefully you don't have to go to a funeral and hear that because we can celebrate a life even of, even of a bad person. We can find certain things that are good because we're people of honor. It's not just if that person was a person of honor. It's the question of, are we people of honor? We can find those things which are something that's redeemable about it. But when David and his guys hear this, they see national tragedy. Like when the Ark of the Covenant was taken. Like when the priests of Nob were slain. And they hear that the king of Israel is dead. That means that the, that the tribes of Israel are broken up. That this, is, this has been a tragedy and their friends are dead, and David's best friend is dead. Can you find the good in a life that has not been well lived? Can you not hate your haters? How do you love your haters? Verse 12 says they mourned and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for all the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. All the collateral damage of a bad leader and his bad decisions. When I see tragedy happen in America, I love my nation. Do you love your nation? I don't rejoice. Even when I see thugs kill each other in our streets. I don't rejoice. I just see the brokenness. I long for justice and life. Those are fatherless people that need to have some hope in this world. I don't rejoice over tragedy. I don't believe that the people of God should ever do that. I think what we ought to do is get on our knees and pray and weep and say, how can we be part of seeing change happen in this world? They, they weep until evening. We get the idea of a young king who cries over a city. What is a city? Is a city just buildings? No, city is a people. Do you remember a young rabbi who cried over a city? Jesus did this. He mourned and wept because he saw them. They were like sheep without a shepherd, scattered. We get a heart here that even though David lives, what, a thousand years before Jesus, he is exhibiting the heart of Jesus towards the broken and the lost. 
David comes back to the conversation with the young Amalekite. He's put everything on hold while he and his guys mourn. And evening goes, and now they come back. And he says, and David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Now, whether you were a natural-born citizen, you were a citizen of the people of God in the land of Israel, or whether you were an alien, a sojourner, somebody passing through, the law applied to both. In our world today, we have massive death that's happening every day in our streets, and because we don't punish murder with capital punishment, we have a very low view of, of the value of life. Because when you kill babies in the womb, you're saying that the most protected and the best place that there should be that has the most nurturing, and it's not the safest place in the world, but it ought to be the safest place in the world. And when that's going on, what you are saying is life is not valuable. If you want to change the heart of the people, you can't, be throwing, you can't be throwing babies' lives away, and you have to punish those who do wickedness. Capital punishment has never been rescinded in the Bible. When, when Noah came out of the ark, God, what did God do during the flood? He killed everybody but eight people. Why did he do that? Because violence and wickedness were on their mind continually. And God said, I've dealt with the wickedness that's happened. And then he says this statement. He says, he that sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. He instituted government and he said, you make sure that when people don't value life and they kill life, you kill them. And it sends a message through society that says, this should not be happening and it makes people value life. But we've gone away from what God has said. We haven't, we, haven't, we haven't practiced capital punishment in Indiana in over a decade because they make it too hard to do. And if we simply did that, I don't believe that we would have the things happening that we see happening today. David says, you're an Amalekite, you're a sojourner, that means the law applies to you. He says, you're not allowed to kill people. The book of Leviticus says that. It says anybody that would throw their child into the ovens of Molech, which is infanticide. If you committed infanticide, you die. And if you kill somebody like that, you die. So David is now, he's sitting in the seat of justice. And then David says to him, how is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? What David is saying, you know, I had a chance to kill that guy on multiple occasions, and I never did it. I had a chance to put my spear into him, but he was the Lord's anointed, and I wouldn't touch him. How is it that you lack the fear of God and you, you slayed the Lord's anointed? How dare you? How is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? Watch what David does to this young man. Remember, the young man has come thinking he's going to be rewarded for, for killing David's enemy. 
But David didn't count Saul as his enemy. He counted him as his neighbor. A flawed neighbor, yeah. A neighbor that needed the grace of God, yeah. But he was somebody God had to deal with. David calls over one of his young men and he says, go cut that man down. The young man gets up, cuts that young Amalekite down, struck him so that he died. David stands over that young dead Amalekite and he says these words. And David said to him, your blood is on your own head. For your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. It was a death penalty case, and David was the instrument of God's justice. Now, you can look at this story and go, I'm the good guy. Or is it that you're the bad guy? The Amalekite clearly is the bad guy. But I have a question. Who was the Lord's anointed that we are responsible for his death? Peter, in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, is laying the weight of the cross and the slaying of Jesus. And he looks at the people and he said, you all killed him. The gospel message is that we slayed Jesus. Your sin, my sin, we killed the Lord's anointed. Do you, do you recognize that today? Do you recognize that it was your sin that required a death penalty on someone? It should have been you. It should have been me. And yet the Lord in his justice says, no, I'm going to take the penalty. Do you see how even the death penalty itself is, is a form of the gospel? Because the grace comes in. You and I deserve that. I'm looking at a room full of murderers. We murdered the Lord's anointed. Do you recognize that? Do you realize the weight and the penalty of your sin? That's just a little sin, Pastor Nathan. It's just a little sin. Nobody even sees it. I'm not sure it even affects anybody. Your sin and my sin, our private sin, put Jesus on the cross. We look at what's going on at Asbury and we think, man, that's awesome. Do you know what that revival is connected with? It's called repentance. Repentance looks at your heart and goes, I'm a wicked, I was a wicked sinner. I need grace, I need Jesus. And there is something that happens when we're truly sorry for our sins. You and I deserve death. We touched the Lord's anointed, the smeared one, the Messiah. You and I are the bad guy in the story. But he's the good guy. He's the one that looks over all the brokenness in this world and he weeps over it. He's the one who says, they need somebody to come and to change this situation. And he is our savior and he is our king. Yeah, we have an unresurrected dead king in this story on the third day. But we have a resurrected king on the third day in our story. Would you bow your heads with me? When our sin we don't see as very bad 
we're becoming desensitized. Yes, when we hear about violence all the time, we're like, yeah, what's new? We see it on our TV all the time. We see sexual immorality all the time. We see all of the villainy all the time. But God hates that and he died for it and he loves sinful man. And he loves you and he loves me today. And he's coming to ask us, do you, do you accept my sacrifice for your death penalty worthy sin? Do you see that? Will you receive from me today? Because it doesn't have to be you or me that dies on the cross. Jesus already did that if you'll simply believe. The Amalekite is a type of the flesh in the scriptures. And if we let the flesh remain and never be cut off, if we don't eradicate it in our life, that it always comes back to plague the people of God. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're going, my flesh has been at war with me. My flesh, it keeps coming after me. It keeps trying to destroy my life. And, and you've got to cut it off, whether it be, I don't know, whatever it may be, any secret sin, anything that you're doing, it's, it's, it's out of step with the Jesus and the, and, and, and the beauty and the holiness that was him. Are you okay with your sin today or do you realize the gravity?